Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Who's your guest tonight? I have a great guest tonight. I just finished his book, Privacy Lost, last night. It's called Privacy Lost, How Technology is Endangering Your Privacy by David H. Holtzman. And it is just incredible, very well written, and scared me. But a lot of the stuff I knew, but he had such a great perspective on things. We're going to talk about that tonight and all about the things that he's done. Now, he has an incredible background. Let me tell you a little bit about David. David, besides being the author of Privacy Lost, is a former security analyst and military code breaker. He's a futurist, activist, technologist, technology executive, and a writer. Throughout his career, he has led initiatives that have radically changed the way people interact with technology. First of all, David's an internet pioneer who helped oversee the internet's growth from its infancy back in the 1990s through the dot-com boom. He was chief technology officer of Network Solutions and the manager of internet's master root server. He ran the most critical network in the world, the domain name system. Actually, I'm registered with them. And he oversaw the growth of commercial internet from 500,000 to over 200 million domain names. As chief scientist at I IBM's Internet Information Technology Group, Holtzman managed the development of IBM's information product and service office to encrypt and sell digitized content across the Internet called Cryptolopes. Um, he also served as a senior analyst for Booz Allen and Hamilton for several years, where he ran technology restructuring initiatives for Wall Street firms, and he designed he designed and built a network heterogeneous database and text retrieval system called Minerva, which was used by NATO and several trade associations before being sold to IBM back in 1994. Holtzman was also CEO and chairman of uh, a venture-backed startup company he founded in 2000, and then he sold in 2001. While there, he developed and patented innovative marketing intelligence technology, and he also consulted on marketing technology for several large corporations. As a former cryptographic analyst, Russian linguist, and submariner with the U.S. Naval Security, Holtz also worked at the Defense Special Missile and Astronautics Center as an intelligence analyst focusing chiefly on the Soviet manned space program. He's currently president of global, he's currently president of Global POV, a firm he founded to explore significant tech issues in more detail. Presently, David Holtzman publishes daily comments on topics such as privacy, intellectual property, business, and the pop culture on his blog, www.globalpov.com. He's been qu- he's been quoted by major newspapers and uh, magazines, including CNN Headline News, Bloomberg Television, BBC News, Scientific American, on and on, New York Post, you could name it. Anyway, for more information, you can learn so much more about him at davidholtzman.com and also at privacy, KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. 
Thank you so much, David. You're joining us from all the way from the East Coast. Yes, thanks for having me. It's, it's nice here, by the way, nice weather. Oh, good. It's about time, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice weather here, too. We're in sunny Southern California and, and no fires right now. So that's, that's the good news. How did you uh, decide to write your book, Privacy Lost? Well, I've been a technologist for decades. And before that, I was an intelligence agent. And, and both of those professions have some similar uh, attributes. They both deal with really large amounts of information. And over the years, I've been watching as more and more information accumulates, and, and I've come to some basic you know, thoughts about this because of the technology. And, and it, you know, people talk about how par- uh, privacy is going away, and, and that's certainly true, but there's, there's some underlying reasons for it that are technical, not just I mean, there's social, cultural, legal, and political issues. But there's also technical ones, and, and I thought it would be interesting to write a book uh, coming at it from a technology perspective and probably come to the same conclusion as those coming at it from a legal pr- perspective, but from a different way. You know, lots of times when I speak to people who are real technologists and security conscious, they don't always get the privacy issues. They're into security, which is protecting data, but they don't understand the privacy with regard to controlling data and who has the right to control it. Yes. And and that was what was so refreshing to, to hear that about you. So let's talk about what privacy does mean to you, because we've heard different definitions, everything from, you know, the right to be left alone by, you know, Justice Brandeis to, you know, the right to control your information. How do you define privacy in this information age? Um, the, the basic definition I use is the right to control information about themselves, about oneself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, this isn't is not a legal viewpoint, but but as an ethical viewpoint, it appears to me that individuals should have control over their information the same way that a company has a trade secret information about themselves, and governments have secret information about themselves. It's a, it's kind of an it's kind of a similar problem in the sense that organizations, entities, and individuals are generating uh, valuable digital information. And, th- and this information is very valuable, right? I mean, it's like, uh, as I'm sure you are well aware, but, a, but a, a, con- a record of information on a consumer can be worth anywhere from 25 to $200, depending on who the audience is. And I think that, that each of us has the right to control that information, to disseminate it, to transmit it, to, to have it go out to whomever we want it to go out to, and when we lose that, I think we're losing our privacy. Well, you know, in our country, we really are not, um, our personal information doesn't seem to be considered our own property, even though you and I may think so. That doesn't seem to be what the society, and at least in our country, believes. And that's, that's true. And that's really a big part of it. I like the way you were talking about the evolution of computers and how, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, the computers took over for our hands. You know, and now you're talking about computers taking over for our brains, and uh, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, it's 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 even a little worse than that. I talked a lot of my book about profiling and why I don't like, or why I'm very worried about data profiling. And and when you start getting into data profiling, that's you know, for anyone who doesn't understand that it's it's at one level, digital privacy is about just raw information, like where I went today, what book I bought, what kind of car I drive. I mean, that's one issue, and I'm not even sure you can protect that anymore. But another issue, it's what I think. So we go from hands to actions to even thoughts. Data profiling starts to get into what I think or what somebody thinks I think. And a really good example of that in a very simplistic way is is Amazon.com. You go to Amazon, and they have this recommender thing. It's not very good, and it's very simplistic, but it gives you an idea of where the world's headed to where uh, both consumer marketing organizations and the government are developing very uh, expensive, very complex software programs to be able to determine based on our actions and our, our transactions and our purchases what's going through our head. And I find that just terrifying. Whether they're right or wrong, I find it terrifying. Right. And a lot of people will say to me, well, and I find it terrifying also, David, a lot of people will say to me, so, you know, well, that means that then they're going to cater to me, cater to my needs, you know, they'll send me a book that perhaps I really want to read, and they save me the time of having to look for it. But I don't think that they realize that when all of these various databases that you talk about that never go away, that get networked and networked all together, how this huge profile can be used to hurt you, especially when it's blended with government. Oh, yeah. Well, it, well for, on the one level, a profile could be wrong. 
there was um, uh, an HBO show called the a Guide for the Merry Man or something a couple of years ago, and I happened to catch an episode of it once. And this guy was um, uh, had a TiVo, and he watched a, I guess he watched Queer Eye for a Straight Guy once or something like that. And then t- and, and then the TiVo thought that he was gay, so it started taping all these uh, you know pr- predominantly gay themed shows, and he was really upset about it. And that was kind of the the plot of the show. It's sort of amusing, but it, but it gives you an idea. I mean, it, it's it's the, these profiling systems get it in their head that because you like a certain book or because you watch a certain movie, you know, you you are something, you believe in something, you subscribe to something, and th- and that's pretty benign uh, as it goes. But then you start worrying. I start worrying about the government, and then you look at systems like uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Caps Two system that TSA is using, where they do passenger profiling. And right now they're looking mostly at your last name, and if you happen to be like Ted Kennedy was on the Don't Fly list forever because uh, somebody used his name as an alias once, and a terrorist uh, a terrorist used his name. So that's a pretty simplistic way. But now they're starting to build much more sophisticated systems. There's a system they're looking at now called Tangram, which is going to be uh, co- compiling a lot of information. So the fact that you maybe you know you flew to uh, you flew to San Francisco twice on open-ended tickets or the fact that you bought a certain kind of a book, or the fact that you talked to certain people on the telephone. All of that stuff is what's going into these profiling systems. And it may be right, it may be wrong. Even if it's right, I still have a huge problem with it. And lots of times you're right, it's wrong. I mean, we, you know, we've had so many people who've contacted us that are on the watch list for TSA and they cannot get on an airplane. You know, yeah. or, or every time they get there, their luggage will not go through. They get stopped. They have to go through hours. They have to go through all sorts of rigmarole. They can't find out why they're on it. They can't get off. And you talk about this in your book. And we have live people that call us. And, and additionally, um, some of the profiling, like the uh, the fact that, and you talked about this in your book also about ChoicePoint and Axiom and all these data brokers. And we've had many people who have um, contacted us who were victims of criminal identity theft. Sure. And so what happens is there's these uh, databases that show that they're criminals. And then what they go to you know, the, the court and they say, this isn't me. They give their fingerprints. The fingerprints get sent up to you know, the FBI, the NCIC, and, the, and the, fi- the FBI says, you're not in our database. You're clean. Yet the databases, the background check databases, are not fingerprint-based. They are name and social security number based. So those still proliferate, and you know how many they link back and forth and how many are sold and resold. And so we have victims who are re-victimized over and over again, even though they've been shown to be basically innocent by the FBI with their fingerprints, yet the database with their name has profiled them as a criminal. Well, I'll give you a personal example of my case that didn't wasn't in my book because it just happened. But um, I I I, uh, I went through a, a very nasty contested custody case in Virginia, like 16 years ago, and I had five kids and I won custody and I've raised them and they're all doing really well today. You know, over the last decade and a half. But during the custody case, my ex-wife alleged a lot of things that weren't true, and you know the judge struck it and nothing ever happened. But that information snuck into the NCIC database, and I was crossing into Canada about two years ago, <sighs> and the Canadian immigration person pulled out allegations that that were never part of a, a certainly were not part of a criminal record huh. because I was never I never even had a trial or anything. The judge just threw them out. But the fact is, they were there, and and I didn't have any record of an of a trial or an acquittal. And the only thing that saved me is I had five grown up kids in the car. Oh my goodness! And um, and and I and there's I was on an article in the San Francisco Chronicle last week that this has become a huge problem. Um, this kind of thing because our government is now sharing their records. Like NCIC is a good example. They're sharing this kind of information with foreign governments. And and you th- you think you're in problems now? I mean, try and explain this stuff in a country. At least in Canada, they speak English uh, most of the places anyway. But imagine you're in a place where they don't speak English very well, where they're inimical to American interests and you run into something like that, it's awful. Yeah, we had a CEO several years ago that called us that um, had gone uh, to Germany on business, and he was immediately arrested because someone had used his name and gotten a passport using his name and had committed crimes in Germany. <laughs> and trying to clear that one up, that was that was not an easy thing. I mean, it, he was in jail for three days before he could even get any help to right. get and, out and of a, there. In a lot of cases, we're talking, you know, the examples you and I are giving are about like, you know, fact, yes, fact, no, partial fact. 
Now, those can eventually be cleared up if you have enough. I but think. not really. I mean, I've been dealing with, I have cases that I've been dealing with that even though we cleared the court records, the, the, and you talk about this in your book, how once the data is created, it's never, you're never able to yeah. kill it. Well, that's like in my case. Yeah. I, don't, I, I, I can't find a computer. I went to the county where, where all this had happened, where I got custody, and they said, well, it hasn't been in our records for a, you know, two decades, but it's, but it's in somebody else's records. And, and, the, and this gets us back, I think you were alluding to this, and I, I went into this in my book a lot, but da- I, one of my contentions is that data, digital data never goes away. If you, you think you've deleted a file, you think you've erased something, you're never really sure it's deleted. And there's a lot of technical reasons for this. Um, if it can be, all, almost all computers are on networks these days. So if you're in a company or you're in a school or you work for the government, somebody backs that thing up every couple of days, and then it goes on tape, and then it gets stored somewhere. Well, nobody ever deletes it off the backup tapes, number one. Number two, when you delete stuff off a hard drive, uh, especially in Windows, it doesn't really delete the information. Everybody seems to think it does. In Windows, all it does is it changes the first letter of the file to a non-printing character, and then Windows just ignores the information. But it's still on your hard drive. Um, and you, you might know this or, or not, but, but some of the Lewinsky stuff that came out with, with a can of star subpoenas, a, a lot of that information was never actually sent that was viewed as emails. They were things that she had drafted and then deleted, and then Star pulled them off of her hard drive. Oh, my, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Huh. So, and then when you think about, you know, and, the last... And then even if that doesn't happen, Dave, you were talking also about how it's shared, how we're networked with every other computers all over the place. So, Absolutely. And, and, and your companies, companies that you deal with that collect your information, uh, the, the information is, wor- is worth a lot of money. And so they share it, they sell it, and right now in this country they can do that. You know, under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, they can do it unless you opt out, except in California. And even if you try and opt out in California uh, for affiliated companies, you can't do that. And so you, this loss of control over your information, which is what you're talking about, privacy lost in your book, is that, yeah, it keeps proliferating. So these people who have talked to me about their criminal identity theft, after we've done motions to the court, after we've taken everything off of the office of... Um, court administration you know we clean everything up and then you do a background check and it still comes up okay so then <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that and, and that's the problem is that it is somewhere else it's been shared it's been sold and they make a lot of money selling this okay. information i was talking on a brazilian radio show yesterday and i gave an example and, and I, she the, the interviewer asked me she said look once your information is out there you know you know, it, w- what do you care? I mean, you don't have any control over it. The information is just gone. And I use the example. I said, look, just because I choose to wear a swimming suit and take off my top one day doesn't mean you have a right to make me take off my top the next day. It's yeah. my choice. And just because information has gone out there, if I give a company information about me, my phone number, my social security number, if I'm dumb enough to do that, which I'm not, <laughs> but or my preferences or anything else, right. that doesn't mean I get to use it the next day for some other purpose. Right. I mean, usually when you give your information for a particular purpose, you give your credit card and you give your name and your address and you're buying something on the Internet, that is the purpose you've given for. You haven't given permission for any other purpose, and for them to use it for another purpose just seems totally anti-privacy. Well, that's one of the, one of the sins I listed in my first chapter. Exactly. An, an, an example of that would be the, the TJX thing uh, with the TJ Maxx and the Marshalls Department Store. They had probably the biggest data breach in history a couple of months ago. Right. And, and one of the problems was they were apparently saving credit card information uh, that was uh, scanned in at point of sale which they're not supposed to do, but, but there aren't any laws that I know of that stop them from doing it. It's just all contractual with the credit card companies. Right. I mean, Visa and MasterCard tell them they're not supposed to do that. Well, I, ha- I had this problem once because I, I, I refuse to use these supermarket courtesy cards, and I'll explain why, but I'm sure you know why. Right. But, <laughs> but I refuse to use those things. And my, my local store out here, in the, and I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and um, my local grocery store, one day um, I checked out, and I noticed on my receipt, it said, it said uh, if you had been using us in the last couple of months, you would have saved this much money. And right. I said, wait a minute, where the heck did you get that information from? And finally, I worked my way through the company, and they had created a database record using my credit card number as the index field. Uh-huh. And they were storing all this. So I called up American Express, and I complained. And you can imagine the frustrating experience trying to get someone in Amex to explain that. Right. And, and finally, I talked to somebody in the general counsel's office, and he said, you know, contractually, We've asked them not to do it, but we don't do anything about it. Huh. 
Incredible, incredible. And that, of so, course, so that, I mean, you, you specifically didn't get a loyalty card, so they wouldn't be tracking you, and yet they are t- tracking you. Well, sure, it's like telephone re- company records. I mean, unless things, are, and it's probably different in California, but in most places, my understanding is if you have an account with a telephone company or, or any other company, and you terminate, like you send the card back, that doesn't make them delete the information. That actually removes them from any restrictions on what they can do with the information. Unless they had a privacy policy that said that they wouldn't do something. And none of them are it. dumb enough to do that. Right, Pri- right. Privacy <laughs> policies, by and large, are not worth the paper they're printed on. The, the one thing that has happened recently is the Federal Trade, Federal Trade Commission has come down on companies that have done things that were in direct defiance of their privacy policy. They right, have like actually the, the, fined them. The yeah. toy company a couple of years ago. Right. That was, but, in, but but because I've been, I mean, I serve on, you know, large company boards every now and then, and, and every meeting I've been at in the last couple of years where somebody discusses privacy policy, the general counsel walks in and hands somebody a privacy policy that is so draconian that, and so anti-consumer that, that there isn't any possible way the consumer is going to be able to enforce that privacy policy. Right. That's well, it's almost, yeah, and it's almost like HIPAA, you know, the, the, the privacy, uh, you know, disclosures that you get are not privacy protection. They're disclosures of what they're going to share your information with. Yeah, HIPAA, you know? HIPAA is a good example because I've, I've, talked, I'm, uh, I've talked to several congressmen and senators about this, and HIPAA infuriated me in, in what actually happened with it. It, it, it had, you know, it's often uh, extolled as, as being, you know, this wonderful, you know, pro-consumer privacy, and it, it's and been anything but. It's been exactly the opposite. In fact, we've had several people on our show who are experts in this, and the, the most important horrible thing that it's done is your, your patient-client, I mean, your patient-doctor privilege of confidentiality has been eroded. And that's the one thing that all of us have believed in. Just like you have an attorney-client privilege, you have this doctor-patient privilege that is supposed to keep everything confidential. And, and so, you know, people think that they can confide in their doctor about symptoms that they have or diseases that they've had or things that they're worried about. And now that can really be revealed. And it is being revealed. Well, my, my doctor is a very privacy-friendly guy. And... Um and he agrees with a lot of the things you and I are talking about. And what he what he told me he does is he basically keeps two sets of books. Right. <laughs> and he keeps a, he keeps a set of and I think a lot of doctors are probably doing this now. He keeps a record for because he has to turn it over to the managed healthcare people as part of his agreement to be able to take health insurance. And then you know things that he doesn't think they ought to know, he just doesn't give them it somewhere else that the nurses don't have access to. Right. And it's scary because if they keep it on their computer and then somehow they're investigated, then that information gets out. And yeah, it's it's a brave new world, isn't it? It's just, it's an incredible world. But yeah. let me ask you, um, you had written a lot about what government was doing and what commerce was doing in your book. So let's talk with my audience a little bit about the Patriot Act, because a lot of them, I, th- I thought it was cute that you, you had talked about if they didn't name it the Patriot Act, and you had some other name I forgot right now, but you it said... Really, really scary take away our Civil Rights Act. <laughs> <laughs> if they would call that call it that, then people, I think, would have a little bit more consciousness about it. But let's well, I, talk about what it did and what you talked about in your book. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer like you are. I'm not an expert. I'm a technologist who did a lot of research for the book. But my understanding of the Patriot Act is it, it pretty much gave law enforcement, in fact, it's not even law enforcement, it's virtually any government agent for all practical purposes, the ability to look at records with impunity, and it becomes a felony if the uh, provider tells the consumer that, that the agent was looking at the records. Right. I mean, that's in the simple form. And then you get into things like Article 213 or Article 215, you know, where, where it, at, at one point it looked like they were going to be able to get into bookstore records, and the Congress sort of backed off on that last year, but it's it's still very loosey goosey. And then you get into you know I don't know how deep you're into physics courts and national security letters. But I mean, there's all these. Basically, the right way to look at this is just like three or four different levels of accountability. I think is probably the right word to use. And that and we all feel. I mean, I'm an ex intelligence and an ex military person. We all I think we all feel that at some level, the the law enforcement people really need to be able to get certain kinds of information for breaking, you know, nationally critical circumstances. Nobody wants another 9-11. Absolutely, yeah. But, but on the other hand, and it's starting to break out now, these guys are using this thing like a get-out-of-jail-free card because they're too lazy to go through the paperwork. And that's apparently what's been coming out in the last couple of days, um, where, you know, the, this whole FBI thing and the Justice Department thing, 
where they're just basically using uh, using the Patriot Act and, and national security letters willy-nilly just to be able to get information for every kind of case. Yeah, and you know, when I've talked to the Center for Democracy and Technology, for example, and they were explaining that the um, the FISA warrants were so easy to get. First of all, I mean, yeah. they're, they're ne- they were hardly ever turned down. Number one, I think there were like five in five years. They're that like were turned they're down. like grand juries. They're yeah. rubber. They're rubber. It's, it's not probable cause. It's reasonable cause. So you know, at least there would be a court that would have seventy two hours after the uh, the warrant was issued to look it over. Actually, have seventy two hours afterward, and meanwhile they have twenty four hours. I mean, somebody was always on call twenty four hours for these warrants, and there was really no reason to have to go in without a warrant for the FISA court. So that's what's so scary is why not take that precaution? Why not have that checks and balances? Right. Well, let me let me bring that word up again: accountability, because that's what I see going on in the last couple of years in the post nine eleven Bush administration. Is I see a, 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 an apparent willingness to avoid accountability, and 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 a lot of people seem to be bamboozled, thinking that the, you know, well, you want to be safe, do you want to be attacked by a terrorist, do you want another plane blowing up? Of course I don't. But there's some sort of linkage in a lot, like causality linkage in people's mind that if they, you know, if they stop, if they put accountability on these agents, then all of a sudden, you know, you're not, you're you're going to not going to be safe, and that's not true. In well, fact, if, if you yeah. look at nine eleven, if you look at the nine eleven situation with the hostages, they uh, well, sorry with the with the, uh, yeah. with the hijackers, yes. they had most of those guys cold. If they had only applied the rules they had at the time, they didn't need four hundred billion dollars of computer systems. They didn't need to have privacy invasive policies or technologies. They had almost everything they need. They just didn't do it. Exactly. I mean, the FBI. Remember the woman from Minnesota who was in the FBI who said that she had the uh, the other gentleman who was supposed to be the twentieth uh, hijacker, and yeah, she Zacharias had Zacharias Masawi. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, he, he and, went to flight lessons, and he said, "I don't care about taking off and landing. Just show me how to fly it into things." Exactly. And there was already reasonable suspicion, which there would have easily been. They could have done any kind of wiretapping on him and anything that they wanted to do on him because there was obviously reasonable suspicion. And I think you're right. The fact that they had the tools that they needed, they didn't use them. And now I think what they're doing is actually making it worse because if they're going to get so many other people that they are going to be investigating, they really can't focus on the ones that there is really reasonable cause, right? Yeah. yeah, I I mean, it just takes away their their resources to to focus on those who are most, um, you know, suspicious. We, I, I absolutely, I agree. And let me bring up sort of a scary corollary to that, which is, you know, when, when America's, Americans talk about terrorism, we're often thinking of we, what we really mean most of the time are Muslim terrorists. We have this view of, you know, some guy with a big mustache getting on a plane and blowing it up or some, you know, some recreation of the 9-11 events. But in fact, terrorism is really ideological, not, not ethnic or religious or genetic or anything else. You know, you look at the Oklahoma uh, City, you know, federal building bombings. You know, those were those were people who would not have been caught in any of the passenger profiling lists. Exactly. Schemes we're doing today. The only way to catch those kind of terrorists, which are just as problematic as you know the Middle East terrorists, is is to have a, a level of, of big big brotherism in this country that would be appalling to most people. Exactly. We're speaking now with the author of Privacy Lost: How Technology Is Endangering Your Privacy. We're speaking with David H. Holtzman, who is also a security expert and a technologist, and uh, pretty brilliant, as a matter of fact. So let's let's get back to this whole issue of fear and uh, the difference between national security and the balance between national security and privacy. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that fear that's out there that people are willing to give up their civil rights and um, in the name of security? Well, there's a couple ways to answer this. At, at, at one level, you know, I, I can criticize the administration because, in my, in my personal opinion, the administration has deliberately used fear-mongering, this administration, and some of Congress, too, has deliberately used fear-mongering tactics to get things that they want or think they need passed. And, the, and you know, the, the fact that the Patriot Act passed 99 to 1 with, with apparently nobody in Congress having actually read it the first time, except for Feingold. I don't think anybody even admitted they read it. Yeah, and because he voted against it. <laughs> he's the only one. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody, I think Mary Landrieu uh, complained a little bit about it. But, but, but basically everybody just signed the damn thing. I mean, they're all, they're, 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 people, 
people tend to react like a herd. And, and, you know, I remember growing up as a kid reading about Joseph McCarthy in the House on right. American Activities Committee. And I thought, my God, you know, it, it seemed like it must have been a million years ago. How could people be so dumb? I remember thinking, how could they do this? You know, how, and then now I understand because... Fear gets in, and then what's even worse than fear is you get branded in a certain way. And you talk about privacy, and I talk about privacy, and you must get the same kind of uh, you know comments from people that I get. Like they, they don't quite call you unpatriotic, but it comes pretty close sometimes. Or, or what have I got to hide? You know, I have oh, to. <laughs> that's my number. That's my number one. I get that every every time I do uh, a radio or an interview, I get that question within five or ten minutes. Yeah. And 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 when you turn it around like that. I think, first off, I think it's un-American. And second off, whenever in history we played that game, we've all, it's always been a national embarrassment for decades, even a century later, whether it was, you know, interment the Nisai during World War II or the House on American Activities Committee or, or some of Nixon's shenanigans in Watergate. I mean, it's, these are not sparkling moments in our country's history. And I think we're going through another one of those things right now. So, you know, going back to the national security thing again, I mean, to the second part of that, my answer to that question on how you balance that is, and this is a really hard pill to swallow, but I think the American public needs to understand that this is not a safe place that we live in. The world is not inherently safe. You cannot, you know, wrap the world in Twinkies and Velveeta cheese so you all never hit sharp edges when you fall. You're going to get hurt. People are going to get hurt. Things are going to happen, and you have to deal with it as a country, I think Israel's done a fairly good job of taking that lesson to heart, for instance. I think they've really focused on the real issues. You know, when when they do profiling, they don't do it by, um, you know, by how someone looks, because a lot of the Palestinians, for example, who, who have been the terrorists, look very much like them. You know, <laughs> so you can't you can't do it by yeah. how somebody looks. They, they do psychological profiling, which well, makes a lot more sense. We had Bruce Schneier, who you probably know. Yeah. He mm-hmm. was on our show and he was talking about that. He said it's such a joke the way, you know, we should do profiling, but we should do profiling like they do it, um, you know, in Israel. Just, no, that makes perfect sense to me. And, and it, it, there, there's a certain kind of race. There, in fact, most of this discussion that we've had in the last four years after 9-11 about security has a twinge of racism and even xenophobia that I find distasteful. It's, it's very subtle. It's underneath the surface. But there's, there's something about that well, all these systems, you know, there, there's a wink-wink thing that goes on. And, and I, I hear Bush say this a lot of times when he gets press, uh, press answers, press questions about this. There's a wink-wink that, don't worry, we're not after, you know, Americans. We're after them, whatever them happens to be. Uh, but, you know, the same systems are going after everybody. Exactly. And I think why everybody voted for the Patriot Act so quickly, what was that in the end of October of 2001? I think they were shell-shocked. Uh, I think that's probably, they weren't thinking, and they did not, they were smart enough to say, okay, we're going to have a sunset, or, you know, it's going to end, and we have to think it through again. But when it came time to uh, reaffirm the Patriot Act, that's when the thing shocked me. <laughs> Is me that too. they, you know, uh, not so much that they that they reacted in a knee-jerk reaction because that made sense to me. It was it was such a shell shock for everybody. But I think when they had time to really, you know, crystallize it in their mind, then they still didn't get it. And that was the part that I think was kind of un-American, so to speak, even though it was the Patriot Act. It's 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 amazed me as I talk to people in government and, and educated people, and you know, to be honest, technology people are, are often some of the worst when it comes to understanding this. People accept the inevitability of the loss of their, of their privacy, like Scott McNeely's famous quote, I'm sure you, yeah. you know, privacy is dead, get over it. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that seems to be the prevailing attitude among a lot of people, but you know, there's different levels of privacy, and I gave an example in my book about a friend of mine who grew up in a Scottish fishing village with you know, 50 families, and they've all lived there for like 500 years, and everybody knows everything that everybody's doing. And I said, well, don't you lose your privacy? And he goes, yeah, but we did not talk about it. <laughs> right. And that's another kind of privacy. There's, there's just because you know something, just because the government has to, it's like my doctor. You know, my doctor may know personal things about me, but that doesn't mean he gets to yell it out in the produce section when he sees me in the grocery exactly. store. I mean, I know a lot of sensitive stuff about my clients. I know their finances, I know everything about them, but that doesn't give me the right also to share that information. Well, you're a professional. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should hope so. I, th- I want to get back to what you were just saying, though. You were talking about, and I forgot just now, I just lost my train of thought. Um, 
Okay, I'll get back to it. I'm sure I'll remember it in a second. But um, when we're talking about uh, this this balance between national security and privacy, you were talking in your book about how we have become really a surveillance society and and what will surveillance technology be capable of doing in seven years from now? Within seven years, maybe even less, I think you would have to assume that almost every action and transaction that takes place in a major city will be recorded. And I don't mean credit card transactions necessarily. I mean getting into cabs, I mean getting into subways, I mean buying things, you know, maybe not for cash, but for not, maybe not a pack of gum, but damn near everything else. You know, the, the reconstruction capabilities of video cameras, um, you know, cities like Baltimore are just being saturated with cameras. London's been saturated with cameras for years. New York is getting saturated with cameras. So between the, between the cameras and the credit cards and, and you know, that's bad enough. And the RFIDs. I was just, yeah. and I mentioned that. Yeah. And you look at RFIDs, and for, for any of your listeners who don't know, RFID is radio frequency identifier, and it's a transponder. And it's like these easy pass things. I don't know if you guys have them out there. Yeah, but, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, for toll roads. It's the same idea. And, they're, and the idea is that retail and wholesale stores are going to use them to replace barcodes for inventory control. Makes a lot of sense at that level. The problem is they're getting very, very small and very, very cheap. Very small and very cheap. They, I think I, I remember reading that someone had done something in research where they developed an RFID chip that really wasn't much bigger than a thick human hair. So as, as these Yeah, a grain get, of sand. I read that recently, that, yeah. that now it's like a grain of sand. Now, you had talked about in your book about kind of like the three levels the, the, that of um, RFIDs, where the, the levels that, you know, that uh, read every, anywhere from just, you know, up to 60 feet versus further. Or what, what did you oh, say you were talking well, about that? The, 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 di- the, government says, the government says that a pa- what's called a passive RFID, it doesn't have a battery in it, right. it's capable of being read by, they call it six inches or a foot. It, the fact is it's 30 feet, and, and it's been proven over and over again. And we're talking about, like, by next year, all U.S. passports are going to have these things embedded in the cover. But and and how about the real ID that are being right now? All of these states are are fighting it, but they're fighting it because it's going to be so costly. But basically, the the real issue is those RF you know the RFID that they want to put into your driver's license for your real ID. So, could you imagine you know when you have your driver's license that you have to carry on you, and if it can be read up to sixty feet, you know, or thirty feet or whatever, and somebody gets a reader off off the internet they can read everything that's embedded in your in your driver's license and you, and you have to gonna, put the social security number in there and you know it's going to happen it's this isn't a theoretical it's it, whenever there's there's a loophole somebody takes advantage of it because there's especially if there's money at stake and and then you go back to like you know some retail and inventory control as uh, lots of major retail chains walmart was the first the Gap is, is doing it. Levi's is doing it. They're getting ready to put RFID chips and embed them into, in some cases, shrink wrap, in some cases, into material. I know Levi's has been looking at putting these things in, woven into the jeans themselves. So the idea is, you, you know, it, it keeps you from shoplifting because it'll set off an alarm and you go out of the store. Fine. I get that. If they want to scan it, it makes it easy to scan at the register. I get that. Inventory control in the back room. I get that. Now, the problem is, you're going to leave that store, and they now have a linkage between the number and the RFID chip and your credit card, and, and, and your whole credit record. Is and who knows what else? Right. But now here's the problem. You come back a year later, they're going to know who you are when you walk in the store, if you're wearing those jeans. Just like the, the movie Minority Report, right? I was just thinking that. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's real. It is real. It is real. And, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, this goes back to the, you know, what do you have to hide thing again, but... You know, that's a level of a surveillance society that I, I personally would find very uncomfortable. And I spent a, a lot of time in the book talking from a humanistic and a subjective and a cultural viewpoint about why I don't want to do it, just justify it. But the fact is that a lot of people, you know, have a libertarian bone in them, and they just don't want to be tracked like a mouse. Well, you know, I think one of the problems is this, and you as a technologist could probably comment on this better, much better than I could, but, you know, the technology is pretty incredible we just uh just uh, recently we went to and the university campus here we went and had 12 you know 10 scientists talking to us about all these things that they had in fact when i walked in the room they gave me a badge and as soon as i walked in my picture went up on this big computer it was pretty scary yeah it was pretty scary but i mean they were all excited about this technology and yes there is incredible technology 
but most of the technology doesn't build privacy into it from its first architecture. Ah, good, good point. And you know what? It could. And this, and, and this is the one thing I fault the government for the most, because if the government, the government can't stop technology, and I don't, I'm not a Luddite, I don't want them to do that. Right. But they could mandate that there be certain sort of privacy schemes built into technology architectures. And you know who, the only one, uh, this is a really ironic thing, but the only case I know of in the government where they actually tried to do that was Poindexter's TIA program, which actually had $4.5 million earmarked to build a privacy-related architecture in the system. And because of Congress is beating up on, on the program so badly, they, when, when, they, when it revitalized in various names and forms within the government, they dropped the privacy task. Yeah, yeah. Here in California, we have a, um, a, a senator, Senator Joe Simidian. He was on our show just recently. He's introduced uh, five pieces of legislation to build, build in safeguards into RFIDs. And last year, he find I mean, for two years, he tried to get this bill. Last year, he got the bill to be passed by both houses. I mean, he had to fight and fight, you know, with um, all of the technology companies who didn't want to have any kind of uh, anything imposed on them at all, you know, with regard to the safeguards for technology. Finally got it passed, and then our governor, (laughs) Governor Schwarzenegger, he vetoed it last year. And so now, again, now uh, Semidian has come back with five new bills, and, and the reason he said it was too premature, (laughs) <laughs> and so when Joe was on our show again just a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, Mari, I don't think it's too premature. I think it's too late. <laughs> I, I do, too. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, that's the problem is that the people who are in your business, people always make fun of the, the lawyers, you know, and all of our problems that we have as lawyers. But you know what? You technologists and not you, because I, I can see that you obviously care about this. But there aren't very many in the technology realm. They are looking at security and thinking that equates to privacy, which it really does not. Yeah, I, you're right about that. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think I think that's a I think that's a fair complaint on the technology industry. And I think part of the problem with that is is technology people and technology companies view themselves as being apolitical and agnostic, and and they're not any of those things. But they really think of themselves that way, and they think that technology uh, is is directly and directly proportional to progress. The more technology, the more progress, and that someone who wants to put any kind of guards or protections or regulations right. on technology and the proliferation of technology is either a Luddite or they're just some kind of a, you know, an arch conservative trying to hold back progress. Old-fashioned, so, right, right, right. But, but, but you know, it, you, this is one of the few times I think you actually do need the government is to get in here and watch this kind of thing. And, and, and we wouldn't have to do this if companies had the ability to make ethical decisions instead of business and legal decisions. But, but any sense of ethics seems to have completely disappeared from the corporate boardroom. You know, the HP scandals, I know, I know they were acquitted or let off today. But, but, you know, that's a good example because I think the behavior of, of, the, of Patricia Dunn and the general counsel at HP, I think, was extremely unethical, whether it was legal or not. It was clearly unethical in my view. And it should not have been counted well, it was, by a board. It, you know, pretexting is a form of identity theft. There's no question about it. Absolutely. You know? And that's how our attorney general had looked at it, as this is a form of identity theft, and any kind of pretexting is identity theft. And, and to go in and pretend to be someone else to get information um, is, is a form of identity theft. There's, so, a, there's, there's an old Russian proverb. It's, it's, it's a, never wrestle with a pig because you'll both get dirty and the pig will like it. <laughs> and, oh, I love it. <laughs> and, and, and I think you've got to apply that. At some level on a board, even if you can do something, that doesn't mean you should do something. Well, it gets back to this enforcement issue, unfortunately. I don't think that self-regulation works, and we've seen it over and over again. And I think that and if there's no ramifications, um, you know, if, you, if you're not going to get your hand slapped... <laughs> <laughs> nothing's going to happen, I think you'll just go ahead and get away with it. And, and oh, sure. we've seen that over and over. We've seen that even with all of the security breaches that happened before the first uh, California security <clears throat> breach notification law. We know that there were many, 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 many security breaches that had, you know, millions of uh, personal information, uh, records of personal information that had been lost or stolen or hacked or what before 2003. And yet, we didn't get anybody doing anything about it 
until after our security breach notification law came into effect. Thank God for California, because if it wasn't for your your data breach notification law, we wouldn't even know about most of these exactly. things. Exactly. Exactly. And, and people forget that. And, and of course, we know Congress is trying to um, really water that law down right now with, with a federal law that would preempt our California law. And that's happening, you know, as we speak here. You know, one one simple thing that could be done that would, uh, would cut back a lot on identity theft and a lot of other problems would be to create an, an escalating or graduated fine system where you treat data breach based on the number of people affected, like, like the EPA finally did for pollution law. Something like that, you know, if you, like, you know, $10, $10 a data breach, you know, you, you dump, Experian dumps 10 million records, find them $100 million, and then watch what happens the next day. Yeah. Well, you know, we've seen a lot since the security breach notification laws have, have taken effect, is that it is costly for them to just, you know, uh, the Poneman Institute did studies of the cost of security breaches. It is very expensive for a big company. And, of course, then they have to go, and, and some of them have been fined by the Federal Trade Commission as well. And it's embarrassing for them, and it isn't good for customer relations um, so, you know, I think there has been that, and that, has what, that is why just recently we went to a data protection uh, summit here, and there is this big push now because of our law to really encrypt data, to protect data, and I think our law has done what it's supposed to do, which was, you know, g- give the carrot if you encrypt and do other things and you're careful with it. I think that has worked really pretty well, to be honest with you. I think that's one of the few laws that's worked really well. I think your point earlier was was the right one. The people need to get their hands slapped. If there isn't if there isn't some punitive act, and and and, you know, and I would I would be real harsh about this. I would penalize the company. I'd go after individuals if necessary, especially in the government. Like you know that that the VA laptops. You know there were two. Oh of them. goodness! Look, even look. I mean, I'm a veteran. Several times, yeah. Yeah, and in, in, in every. I mean, when when you put it in these words, every single veteran in the United States had some of their personal data, including potentially financial information, exposed because one employee brought a laptop home that had all that information on it. And now, health information. Oh, yeah. Now, that's yeah. never Agent Orange. They had a whole list of people from Agent Orange in exactly, Vietnam. Exactly, exactly. It should never, the, the, the inf- it'd be nice if that information wasn't in one place at one time, but even if you needed to do it, the fact that the person was able to bring bring that home is, is unconscionable on the one hand. On the other hand, the fact that, that the buck stopped with the GS9 or whatever he was, and they didn't even go after the management. They should have walked that all the way up the, the administration of, the, of, the, of, the, of that bureau because, and the VA because that's the only way you get bureaucrats to notice is you start shooting at the management. If you, if you, if you just go after, it's like Abu Ghraib. You know, you go after an E4 or something from West Virginia. You know, you leave all the, all the military officers alone. You know, you, you have to go after the management when these things Right, happen. the buck stops here. You know, I, I, I wondered about, you know, so much of the technology, especially with the Internet, and you talk about the fact that so much of our privacy is lost with the Internet, and you had brought up some issues about the social networking going on. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting what you brought up about the privacy, uh, di- the difference the way we think about uh, privacy in our different generations and different cultures. you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and since, since the book came out, there was a uh, Zogby poll that actually validated this about three weeks ago, uh, that there, there, was a, there is a de- distinct difference between generational views on privacy. And as a, you know, I'll, I, I use three age groups in the book, but I'll just simplify and use two for a moment. If you look at, say, the, the 18 to 35-year-olds, then you look at the baby boomers, they view privacy in a very different way. Exactly. The younger generation views privacy as more or less a lost cause and it's just, it's, it's not an issue. Um, but the baby boomers care a lot about privacy. Privacy with a capital P, it's an abstraction. And when they really think that their privacy is threatened, they get upset about it. Yeah, and like we grew up in Watergate, right? I mean, that's, right. you know, I mean, I, I graduated college in 1970. That was all about that time. I had a girlfriend who worked for Haldeman, actually, <laughs> and and remember hearing about that and watching the, the Watergate scandal go on. And so we, you know, we had the Vietnam War. We had everything where we were thinking about liberty and rights and all these things. I think... And I don't know how old your kids are, but my kids are like the Generation X, you know. And um, I don't know if they don't care about privacy. I think that they're so enamored with the technology. They they grew up with the technology. I remember when I got my son his his first computer, 
I was in seventh grade or sixth grade, something like that. And then he taught me how to use a computer, you know? <laughs> that, that generation was so into every gadget, sure. right? Yeah. And I think that's it. More than they don't care, I don't think they get it. Well, my, I'm, I'm sort of an aberration. I'm, I'm 50 years old, but I've been using computers since they've come out. I've probably played every major computer game that's ever been invented, from Pong all the way up to, you know, uh, World of Warcraft. And just because I'm, I'm interested in what you can do with computers and, and the social thing just really turns me on a lot. I really like it. But I have, I have the attitude of the baby boomers, but I have the knowledge of the younger generations, which maybe is why I wrote this book. But, but I, I look at it, and I look at you know, Second Life and MySpace and YouTube, and I look at all these, and I'm appalled at the amount of information put, people put out there and not just to, you know, I go back to the difference in information, not just factual, not like I am a student at, you know, the University of Southern California, but um, I'm, a University of Southern, uh, I'm a student at the University of Southern California, and I had drunken sex last night. Right, with right. A profe- with a professor. Yeah. And, you know, and, they'll and this, is, this is going to be there forever, right? When they're, when they're 50 years old, that's going to come up somewhere. Yeah, I, I don't think it's an accident that this is also the generation that gets tattooed. Yeah. <laughs> because these are like digital tattoos. Exactly. You know, piercings grow over. Uh, large-scale tattoos really don't go away. Huh. That's and, interesting. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. You know, I, I wonder about, you know, what, what all these people are going to think when, when they're MySpace stuff. I think, I think part of the problem is that, that I, think, I think a lot of kids view MySpace and things like that as being this dynamic, you know, like a river just flowing and flowing, and you don't step into the same river twice. And, and, but, in fact, there's things like Alexa and, and other programs that are out taking snapshots of the entire Internet, you know, every couple of minutes or whenever. So you have to assume that anything that's ever been posted is archived and recreatable somewhere. And I'm virtually certain the FBI is doing that, nobody, or the NSA or somebody. You know, but it's not transparent, and that's the problem. These kids don't know it. You know, they're like, kids don't know that bad things can happen. It's like my daughter, who's 21 years old, was working part-time at, at, at uh, Disneyland, and her camera got stolen out of her locker that was locked. She was just shocked. You know, that's the first time that anything like that has ever happened to her. And just, you know, she didn't realize somebody was watching her and probably saw the combination or whatever, went there, and after after she left, they took her camera. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was an, an awakening for her. And I think people don't recognize until they actually experience such a trauma. I've had people who've called me that their kids have experienced cyber stalking and cyber uh, bullying on the net. And oh, you yeah, talked a little bit common. about in, in your book as well about, and I've had kids, you know, where they put the, they use Adobe to put the, the head on some sexy naked body and say, you know, this is Susan last night and she's in seventh grade. You know what I mean? I had Terrible. a whole chapter just on that. Yeah, time. yeah. And, and I hear these victims calling me. I had a woman who I had on my show who listened to this. She lives in New York City and someone had taken her information and went on one of these, like Match.com or something like that, Mm -hmm. and said all these things about her that she was, uh, you know, inviting certain kinds of sexual stuff, you know, the stuff that she never would say, and and gave out her phone number and her address, and men were coming to her door. Oh, I believe that. Yeah, and um, this is a form of cyber-stalking, a form of cyber-identity theft. You know, well, well, this is, again, technology. Technology is ahead of all the safeguards to protect not only our kids, but us. Well, one of the things I pointed out in my book was about the, the lag time between technological adoption and, say, the law. And, and it's, like, it's like a half a generation, so, or, or even more. Sometimes it's a full generation. So, for instance, we have legal protections against opening postal mail, but no protections against opening email. We have protections against, some protections against uh, people listening on your telephone call on a landline, but virtually no protection on a cellular telephone, and certainly none on voice over IP. So as, as new technology takes, gets, gets adopted by people and shows up in your Best Buy or your Circuit City, there's nothing protecting you for that, and there probably won't be for like 10 years. I, yeah, and you know how government, how slow it is. I think that's why I get back to this kind of saying that the technology people have to recognize that they have an accountability as well, that if they're going to create some technology, they better be thinking about what are, what are the, what's the dark side of it and how can we prevent that dark side from happening because truth 
truthfully, you know, I mean, one of the things that you say in your book is that a lot of this is beyond our control. But then you also say, you know, we're in charge of it, but we're not in charge of it because we can't do anything that we don't even know about if it's not transparent, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah, you're right about that. I, when I say we, sometimes I mean kind of the collective we. I mean, as a society, we have the ability to make cultural changes that could potentially drive policy, regulation, and eventually the laws. I mean, one of the things, and you, you may disagree with this, but, but I think one of the problems is that we have uh, abrogated our, our rights to, to think about things like this to, to, to lawyers and to Congress. And it's like when, when the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights was, was drafted, those rights were well understood by philosophers and writers and, you know, Rousseau and Paine. People have been talking about that stuff for a century. But privacy is a rel- this idea of privacy loss is a relatively new idea because of technology. It hasn't been talked about. People don't understand it. We're drafting laws without any sort of consensus, and, and that's kind of scary, too. I wish there was a way, and maybe you know, radio shows like yours will help, but, but ways of getting people to understand the basic issues so we can go back to the lawyers and go back to Congress and say, here's what we as a people want. We want something like you know, freedom of press, freedom of religion. We want something like that, but we want it for privacy. Well, I think we need a coalition. I think we need a coalition of brilliant technologists like you who understand the security side, who understand the privacy side, and we need, you know, members of Congress to understand it, and we need the ordinary person because, you know, we can't collectively ask for something we don't understand. So having this inside understanding of the technology and, you know, what we might be able to do with the law, like you said, the the laws are just archaic, so we need to work together. Lloyd is giving me a uh, just a two-minute sign here. I just want to mention that we've been talking with David Holtzman, who is uh, the, the president of Global POV, but most important right now, I wanted you to really think seriously about reading his book, Privacy Lost, How Technology is Endangering Your Privacy. So what can you leave us with, David? What can, I mean, we've been talking about some stuff that's, you know, feeling, making me feel kind of, you know, impotent, so to speak. But what do you think should happen next? What should we be doing? Well, as individuals, I think that what we need to do is we need to fight the good fight every step of the way, every day. And what that means in a practical sense is you don't use supermarket checkout courtesy cards. And if somebody, if you go to a store and somebody says, can I have your phone number? You say no. And the first couple of times, I call this being a curmudgeon. And and the first couple of times, it's a little embarrassing. And and my kids were just absolutely humiliated the first two or three times I did it. But now I've gotten a lot of people to do this. And well, people, they, they can just say, hey, David Holtzman said to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of empowering, really, because you don't have to give these, these people this information. Yeah, I, I tell people, too, but even if you don't give it, they've got it. Well, I know, but, 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 <laughs> but you, have to, you have to give people, you know, it's like, it's like uh, yeah, a lot of elevators in the United States have buttons that say open door, and they, and they don't really work. <laughs> and, right. and, and they're there just to make people feel better. Yeah. Because it's like, at least you can press the button and you, and you can pretend it'll do something. Like seatbelts in an airplane, like that's really going to work. You know, it's just it's psychological, and maybe, maybe that's what we need. We need psychological things. And then just to finish the point off, you know, on the, that's on a small level. On a big level, if you have access to your congressmen or your mayors or your senators, tell them you care, because I've talked to a lot of senators and a lot of congressmen, and in and, and the privacy of their offices, they'll say, look, Dave, I appreciate the issue. But I never get any letters from constituents about it. And until I do, it's just not on my radar screen. Right. We need to get it in the media. We need to get it in the blogs. We need to have a, a, a concerted effort. And um, and maybe they can even write to you and get some ideas. But you should definitely visit davidholtzman.com and look at his book, Privacy Loss. Thank you, David, so much for joining us tonight. I hope that we can uh, talk to you again. Oh, I'd love to. This was fun. Okay, great. You take care, and, and we'll be uh, looking for your new books, too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Have a good night. You, too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. I am your host of Privacy Piracy. Lloyd is my great engineer. To learn more about our previous guests, hear their interviews, download podcasts, write us emails, ask us questions, see our upcoming guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See you next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Thanks. 
The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.